following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 23rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As I was getting ready for this week, I came across a story from the early 1900s during the Klondike Gold Rush. Anybody familiar with that from school? 1896, word got out that gold was discovered in the Yukon Territory of Canada, and that sparked what came to be known as the Klondike Gold Rush, arguably the largest gold rush in the history of North America. Well, the story goes that there were these two um, prospectors, is what they're called, though I am going to struggle all morning to not say gold diggers. That has a completely (laughs) different connotation. They were prospectors. And they were prospecting for or mining for gold. And they had a a place that they got to and they began to do the work. And as they worked, lo and behold, they actually struck gold. They found gold. And the more they kept digging and picking and working, the more gold they found. And so you realize if you're prospecting for gold and you find gold, you don't tell anybody. Like that's your secret. You, You keep it just like that. And that's what they did. And they kept working day after day after day into the night. And the more they mined, the more gold they found. It was as though there was no end to what they were finding. And so they labored night and day to continue to mine this gold that they had discovered. And so captivated by what they had found, they failed to prepare for what they knew was inevitable. It's the Yukon Territory in Canada. Winter would come. And the first blizzard came upon these two prospectors and they weren't prepared for it. The first one died within a week and a half. The second one, the one who who I think he lasted the story said maybe a few weeks longer, he actually took the time to write out a note explaining the foolishness of their actions and he then died right next to his partner who he had worked with. So captivated by the potential that this gold held out. It wasn't even just the presence of the gold. It was all that that gold stood for, all that it meant for how they envisioned their life, their security, their comfort, their prosperity, their peace, that they failed to prepare for what they knew was going to be inevitable, and that was the winter in the Yukon. And as that winter passed and spring began to come and the snow melted and the grounds thawed, another prospecting group, this was a small company, came into the same area where those two men had been and lo and behold, what do they find? They find two dead men with a note lying next to and one on top of one of the largest sums of gold that had been found in that entire gold rush period. So captivated. So focused in a sense that they became distracted From the inevitable. Their thoughts of their own prosperity were were like a current in an ocean that just pulled them along to their own destruction. And I came across the story this week and I immediately felt like it was a cautionary tale for all of us. Not because I feel like any of us are in danger of of running off to the Yukon to pan for gold. I don't think that's going to be the problem. But I do think that it is very easy for us to, in a sense, fall prey to a seduction that threatens to distract us from the inevitable. A seduction that would keep our eyes off of that which we know is going to happen that would keep us from living our life today and tomorrow and as long as God gives us breath from living in light of what we know is inevitable. And the inevitable that I'm talking about, that the Bible speaks about, is called the inevitable reality of the day of the Lord. You have to understand in the Hebrew mind, in the Hebrew worldview in which the, the Bible was born and written, that life is lived really in two ages. Think about it like two sides of a door. There's the present age, that's right now. Then there is the age to come, and that's which God has promised. And the hinge on which the two ages swing is known of as the day of the Lord. The 
day of the Lord is spoken about throughout the entirety of the Bible, Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's spoken most often by God through the prophets to his people. And it's spoken of as a day that's going to be greeted with dancing and gladness and reward or healing, cleansing and belonging. Those are all things spoken of by the prophets about this day. But they also speak of it as a day of humiliation, destruction, retribution, distress, and ruin. The day of the Lord is the final day that God will make himself perfectly clear and will fully and completely all that he has begun. And as we turn into the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, clarity begins to come about this day and we come to know that the day of the Lord that's been spoken about for centuries is also the day of the return of Jesus. It's the same thing. On that day, God will deliver his people. He will sift, as the prophet said, the church. Wickedness will be judged, and at the same time, creation will be renewed. And on that day, the day of Jesus' return, it is the day of the Lord on which we shift from the present age into the age to come. And the reality of it is that day is inevitable for everyone. We talked about this last week. It's inevitable for everyone. But yet at the same time, we all have this tendency to live as though we don't think it's inevitable. We live as though it isn't a real and coming reality. And Paul did not want the church in Thessalonica to live under that delusion. He didn't want them to live under that deception. You see, in Paul's day, you got to remember, it's the height in some sense of the Roman Empire. The Pax Romana has been established. Roman peace, as it was known as, existed. And the motto of the Roman Empire in Paul's day was peace and safety. That was the, that was the motto. Like if I said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you would say America. If you said peace and safety, it's like saying the Roman Empire. And the world had not seen anything like what the Roman Empire brought in a sense of blessing. The architectural buildings and structures and, and wisdom and aqueducts and roads and highways, the wealth and the prosperity and the blessing of the empire, the power of its military, the entire thing seemed to span for most people as far as they could imagine the earth to actually exist. And Thessalonica, the city in which this church that Paul was writing to was located, it was the daughter city to Rome. It was the Rome of the Macedonian region, the former Greek empire. It, it was a free city having been granted that status by Rome and its citizens then were generally fairly well off, somewhat wealthy, comfortable, at ease even, intoxicated. Life seemed good, kind of like those miners in the gold rush. It didn't seem like it could even get any better. It should sound a bit familiar. And just as Paul didn't want the church in Thessalonica to live deceived about the inevitable reality, seduced by the promise of peace and prosperity that the empire holds out, God, in preserving this letter for his church and his people today, wants us to be aware of the same dangers that we not equally fall deceived. See, life in a safe and prosperous place like the one we live in, it, it can make it very easy to think that it will always be this way. That it's always going to last forever, right? Like we're digging that gold and there's no end in sight. Peace security, hope, the promises of a future, they're all right there, right? And just like those miners who ignored the inevitable, for them, the fact that winter was coming and they had to prepare, and in their pursuit of peace and safety, in their pursuit of prosperity and comfort, in the reality of the here and now, that was, that was right in front of them, right? They failed to rightly prepare for the imminent, they lived like that was all there was. It was John Calvin who, who actually said that prosperity inebriates 
people. Nothing is more dangerous than to be blinded by prosperity. And when you think prosperity, don't just think material wealth. We're a prosperous people, not just materially, but in comfort and time and opportunity and relative safety and security. Prosperity inebriates people. Nothing is more dangerous than to be blinded by it. And one of the things that this kind of prosperity, peace and safety, as the Romans would talk about, that that blinds us to, one of the things that we're so easily blinded to is the reality that an end is going to come. Right? The death rate is still 100%. Yet we tend to live as though we know with certainty that that end is not going to happen today. We tend to live with a level of certainty that it's not going to happen tomorrow. And if not the day we take our last breath, we approach the day of the Lord in the same way. But what would it look like? Like, what would it really look like if our choices and our pursuits in life, if our priorities in life, what would it really look like in our lives and amongst God's people if we lived in the light of the fact that there is an end that is certain? That there is an inevitability to come? How would that change the way we lived? How would it change the way we thought? How would it change the priorities and the passions and the pursuits of our heart? What would it look like for us to live as though we were ready for that day? Not just ready for it, but we were actually anticipating it, right? It was Matthew Henry who said it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. And so this morning, as we open up 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, God wants to use the Apostle Paul to help us consider that very reality today. And just like Paul isn't willing to let God's people be unprepared for the inevitable, the day that is going to come, however and and whenever it comes, God wants us as his people today to be prepared, to be ready for that day. And so if you've got your Bibles open, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're just going to work our way through these first 11 verses together and just listen to God through the Apostle Paul. Just listen to what he has to say. Begins in verse 1. Paul writes to the church, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. All right, so I could just pray and we could stop right there. Like, there's an entire sermon in itself right there. Paul just said, I've already taught you. I've already been with you. When I was with you, I taught you of the promises of God in Jesus and the promises of the age to come and the fullness of his kingdom. I taught you of his kingdom that was coming, the reality that was going to be ours for all of eternity. This isn't new to you, right? I taught you all the essentials that you needed to know. You just don't know the time and the season or the date. But it's not for you to know that. In fact, it was Jesus who said in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And he was repeating himself, right? Because in Matthew chapter 24, he's with his disciples. His disciples say, Lord, explain to us when the end will come and what the signs of that end will be. Lord, explain to us when the day of the Lord is going to happen. And tell us what's going to be going on so that we know when it's happening, right? And Jesus said this, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, capital S, Son, speaking of himself, but only the Father. So, when's it going to happen? Note to self, right? This is, write this down for yourself, right? If Jesus said it wasn't for him to know, but only the Father, it's not for you and I to spend so much time trying to figure out, Right? This is a simple note to that. I'm not having to make this up, right? It's, right? it's right there in your Bibles. We can stop trying to figure out when it's actually going to happen. The essentials for our faith and our assurance and our confidence in this present age and in the age to come, we've already been given. 
This is what Paul is going to get into as he continues to encourage the church. He does tell them, though, as they're already aware, it's not for you to know the exact when, but don't forget, it is going to be sudden. That's what he says next in verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware. Right? That's a reminder. I've already told you. Right? That's Paul saying, remember when I taught you this. For you're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And again, Paul is just referring back to teachings of Jesus, Luke chapter 12, Matthew chapter 24, and really even some prophecies that God gave to the prophet Jonah earlier to God's people. He's just going back to things they already knew that he'd already taught them. And here's the thing. At one point in, in our life, my wife and I were broken into seven times in the same home. One time it happened while we were asleep at night. That ended with guns and the whole kind of thing, right? In seven break-ins... Never once did the thief ever reach out to us ahead of time and try to consult with us on when the best time would be for them to break into our house and take our stuff. Never happened. That defeats the entire point of thievery. If we had known when they wanted to come and when they were going to come, we could have done anything in our power to try to prevent them, right? It was sudden and it was utterly unexpected on our part. Paul says, I've already told you this, and I'm just reminding you that when the day comes, it's not for you to know the exact day, it's not for you to know the exact season, but don't forget, it's going to happen suddenly. And that means it's going to catch some people by surprise. Look at verse 3. While people are saying, and while this is their mantra, peace and security, that's the Roman mantra, peace and security, while people are walking around in their hearts and in their minds going, man, this feels so good. Man, this is so secure. Man, it's going to be so great forever. This is it. Like those miners digging, always gold. Everywhere they dug, more gold, always gold. Peace and security right there, right? Man, how great's it going to be? While people are walking around telling themselves that in their hearts, Paul said, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. And he gives us another picture to kind of paint the reality. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Watched my wife have four full-term pregnancies. And I will tell you that when labor comes on, labor comes on. When labor comes on, that baby is coming. There's no reversing the course at that point. That baby is going to be born. It's inevitable at that point right? That's not the time that you start going, hey, we're going to have a baby. I wonder what should we do? Like, that's not when you start preparing for that reality. In some sense, that reality, when labor comes on a pregnant woman, it means that birth is inescapable. It's going to happen, right? Paul is reminding the church, the day of the Lord is going to be sudden and unexpected, like a thief who breaks in at night. And it's going to be sudden and unavoidable like labor coming upon a pregnant woman, right? No warning, no escape from the destruction that stands. So the thing that Paul is after here as he's trying to shift the focus and the concern from the hearts of God's people from the times and the dates and the seasons and the exactness of it to the call to be ready for that day. It's not about the prognostication about when it's going to happen. It's about preparation for the inevitable. That you don't find yourself caught by surprise. See, this is the reality of the the numbing impact of our own comfort. Our our 21st century versions of peace and security that the Roman Empire was so, so dogged about, right? Our own versions of the peace and security that those gold miners felt like they had in that gold that was right in front of them. We have our own realities that numb us to the inevitable that stands in front of us, that continually whisper in our ears and in our hearts, everything's going to be all right. Look, it just keeps going and going and going. Everything's going to be okay. Friends, you and I have no idea when the day of the Lord is actually going to come. You have no idea when you're going to take your last breath. You have no idea which one is actually going to come first. 
But whichever comes first, for you, that is the end for you in this present age on this earth. In light of the suddenness, in light of the inability to know the exactness of it, how foolish is it to not prepare for it? Right, we're all procrastinators, right? All of us procrastinate. Some of you think you don't, you do. We all procrastinate in something. But here's the thing about procrastination. We procrastinate about things we know the deadline for. We know something has to be done by a certain date, so we put it off thinking we can get to it later, right? I know that on 8.30 on Sunday morning, I'm going to have to get ready to stand up here almost every week. I do not anticipate the elders ever coming to me and going, hey, how about we knock this out on Wednesday morning? And I get caught off guard. No, it's going to be Sunday morning because that's the way it is. Now, I might procrastinate some of my preparation for a certain time in the week, feeling like I have certain things maybe under my own control and time and whatnot, but I carry a spare tire in my car because I have zero idea of when that tire is going to blow out on the interstate. That's not the time that I go, hey, I bet carrying a spare tire is a good idea. No, I don't know when it's going to happen, so I prepare. Make sense? Paul is wanting God's people to not be deceived by peace and safety now and find themselves unprepared for the inevitable that is to come. Right? When you think about the, when, you, when we tend to talk about death and, and when we talk about the, the day of the Lord and, and people think about these realities, if they ever really give themselves time to think about these realities, it's not uncommon for some people to talk about Christianity like it's a, crutch for weak people who can't face this stuff, right? You've probably heard that before. I want you to understand that it's actually just the opposite. Christians are actually those who now have come face to face with the inevitable, with the reality that a day is going to come when accountability is going to be had. A day is going to come when the last breath is going to be taken, A day is going to come when you're going to stand before the creator of the universe and all things. Right? If it's not true, then there's nothing to prepare for. So go on about the way you want. But if it is true and we believe it is, then you need to understand there is a way you can prepare. There is a way to be ready for this day. You don't need to be caught by surprise. This is what Paul is reminding the church. You don't need to be caught off guard. But God's people are, are, are to remain alert and awake to the reality and the suddenness of the day. Look at what he says in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You don't need to be surprised. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Man, it's another contrast he's painting a picture here for. And I'm just going to be honest because it's in my head. Most of you don't think, but it's, it's true. When you, when you talk like this or you give presentations in your job, you might know this. But when you do this, we've got like four conversations going on in our head while we're talking. It doesn't seem possible. But right now, I cannot get Pat Benatar out of my head. You know? We belong to the light. We belong, I can't get it out of my head. So if you hear it when you read this, it's okay. Right? It just means you're probably my age and you were riding around at some point in the early 80s and heard this, right? But he's painting another contrast. What he's saying here is that you and I are children of something. And that phrase in Paul's day meant to be a child of something meant that you were characterized by it. You belonged to it. It shaped who you were. How you lived was a reflection of what you belonged to and what you were characterized by. And so Paul reminds the church here that we are children of the light and belong to the day. He's just taking what Jesus taught in John chapter 8 and reminding them of it. When Jesus declared, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life Paul was reminding them that to be in Jesus, to be his child, is to be a child of the day, a child of the light. 
spiritually speaking, we are daytime people. Christians are people of the day. That doesn't mean you like to wake up early or whatever that is. It means just spiritually speaking, you're alert. You're awake. We're characterized by the light of Christ. And because we belong to him, we belong to that light, that characterization, that belonging is meant to look a particular way in the way in which we live. And it's to look a different way in the way in which we approach the inevitable reality that is to come. And that's what Paul gets into in the next couple of verses. Look at verse six and seven. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So again, he's drawing another contrast here, and he's taking things that we know to be relatively true in a physical reality, that night is when we sleep, and, and most, in Paul's day, you understand in the Roman world, in all the craziness that existed in the Roman Empire, it was actually frowned upon for people to be drunk during the day. That, that was actually a thing in society that they were, they were against. And so they understood, much like today, that much of their intoxication happened at, at night. So he's taking these physical realities, but he's applying them to the spiritual world. He's drawing a spiritual contrast here. Spiritual darkness is, is characterized by a, a spiritual sleepiness and intoxication. A sleepiness, a, a sleep to the eternal realities that we face. A sleepiness of, of soul and spirit that leaves us indifferent to the eternal realities. And not just indifferent, we, we live as though they're not real. They're insignificant. Spiritual darkness, in some sense, leaves us sleepwalking through this life in light of the eternal realities of God. And not just sleepwalking and sleepy, it leaves us intoxicated, numb. But the intoxication is the byproduct of a pursuit of personal satisfaction and personal pleasure. The spiritual darkness leaves us pursuing our own passions and our own delights and our own wants. That's what characterizes life in this spiritual darkness. But Paul says we're children of the light. Therefore, let us keep awake and be sober. So children of the light who belong to Jesus, who are characterized by the light of the world that is Christ, are alert. We're awake to the present spiritual and eternal realities of life. We're sober or self-controlled. We're not governed by the passions of lust and our own personal desires. And those two things, if you, if you think about it, they, they go together, right? The more alert we are in the context of what Paul's writing here, the more alert we are to the inevitable day of the Lord, the day that is to come. The more awake we are to that reality, the more alert we are to that reality, the more self-control is cultivated in our heart the more we begin to live in light of that reality. The more awake we are to it, the more we begin to live in light of it. And our lives reflect a self-control born out of the work of the Spirit and the light at work in us by God's grace. So Paul's reminding the church that we're to be awake. We're to be alert to what's ahead. And yet, if we're honest... The temptation to spiritual sleepiness and intoxication is so strong. It's not uncommon for us to be a bit like those gold miners. Just mining away and, and not just the gold itself, but all that it represented the, in their minds, the, the peace, the, the comfort, the security, the prosperity that they saw for their life ahead in light of this gold, the peace and safety of the Roman Empire. It's not hard for us to become just as intoxicated by those things, to find peace and safety, hope and security in those things, to find ourselves then somewhat sleepwalking through life, pursuing our own interests above God's. Sleepwalking, in a sense, pursuing the, the treasures of the world rather than delighting in the riches of Christ. Pursuing our own ease and our own comfort 
over a life of sacrifice and service. Right, inherent in Paul's message to this church in that day is the question, are are we in danger of sleeping through this life? As he draws the contrast, the question gets asked implicitly, are you in danger of sleeping through this life? Spiritually, are you awake? Are you alert? Again, he's just mirroring the very things that Jesus taught. In one of his parables, Jesus taught that the servant always wants to be found about the boss's business when he returns. When the boss comes back, the faithful servant wants to be found doing that which the boss wanted him to do because it was his joy to do that which he was called to do. Are we awake? Are we serving the interests of the Lord even when they cross our own personal interests? When Paul prayed for the church, and we talked about it a few weeks ago, would we be willing to even make it our prayer for one another? When Paul prayed that we be strengthened in heart to be blameless and holy on that day that he returns, it's just another way of saying strengthened, be awake, be alert on the day in which he comes. God's people aren't to be surprised but we're to live alert to the inevitable reality and not just alert, but longing for it and not just longing for it, but aggressively helping one another to prepare for it. Watch this. That's a weird word, but watch this. Verse eight, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So now he shifts metaphors and pictures again, right? So if you've ever been taught, and it's in every preaching class and preaching book, it says never change metaphors. I'm sure your English teachers taught you that at some point. Paul does it all the time. So you have biblical warrant to do it. So he's shifting the image again. Now it's a soldier, but he's not making it up. He's just drawing back on Isaiah 59, what he had most likely told them and read to them from Isaiah when he taught them about this day, when Isaiah 59 speaks of the armor that God puts on, on the day in which he's going to judge the world. But now Paul says that we who belong to Jesus, who are his children, therefore children of the day, children of the light, we are now clothed in his armor. And following Jesus, living alert and awake, sober and ready Paul reminds God's people that it's a fight. If we don't fight, we'll drift. I'm going to change metaphors because Paul said I could. If we don't fight, we simply will be pulled right into a riptide of a fallen world, into its rhythms, into its hopes, into its proclamations of peace and safety. Just like those Men and women of the empire, just like those miners who kept striking gold. We will be pulled right into the drift and the riptide of the world's rhythms and the world's hopes and the world's desires. We drift straight away from any joy in living in a way that pleases God, living in this light. Paul reminds God's people that following Jesus is a fight. It's not a retreat. It's not even essentially self-help or therapy. It does involve transformation. Gloriously, it does involve incremental change, but it's not essentially therapy. It's a battle. In the face of imminent social persecution, we don't face the same kind of physical persecution that so many of our brothers and sisters around the world now and especially then face, but in the face of very real social persecution, following Jesus can feel very scary and very hard. But here's the thing, friends, it's always been that way. Do you know what's easy? Drifting is easy. That's why it's drifting. It's easy 
That's why we like the lazy river or the water park. You don't have to do anything. You just kind of drift. It takes you where it wants to take you. Drifting spiritually is easy. Following Jesus is hard. It's a fight. It's a good fight. It's a worthwhile fight. That's why the word picture here is great. We put on the armor of God for this battle. And the battle for them wasn't against the Roman Empire. The battle for us isn't against American prosperity. The battle has always been against spiritual forces of evil. And the weapons of this war God has given us are faith and love and hope. Confident in the victory that God has won for us as his children through Jesus. Why can we be confident? That's where Paul goes. Look at verse 9. For, because, right? Because. This is why we can stay awake and fight. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. I want you to hear what he just said. He just said that you and I can stay awake and in the fight. Because God has destined you for salvation. Those who are in Jesus, who are children of the day, children of the light, are not going to face judgment or defeat at the hands of the enemy. God has destined you for something else. And that's very important. That's a really important word that God has destined you. Or some of your translations will say, God has appointed you for this. He's already done it. It doesn't mean he might do it one day. It doesn't mean that if you're good enough, he might give you eternal salvation. Friends, that has been the drumbeat of so much American Christianity for decades. This is what so many of us and generations ahead of us and I fear even behind us have drilled into our kids. If you just check the right boxes, if you just do the right things, if you can just make sure Jesus is always happy with you, then you might get this. But lo and behold, if you don't do that, he didn't say this might be yours if you can be good enough. That is the root of so much insecurity, so much anxiety, It's the root of so much pride because some of you like to check boxes. You like to go, I did all these things my church told me to do. I did all these things my parents told me to do. I didn't do all these things that I wasn't supposed to do. It's the root of so much insecurity and pride. But Paul just reminded the church that God has appointed this for you. It's not a might that you have to earn. It's a gift that God in eternity past determined to give you. You have been appointed to salvation because his own son suffered the destruction that you deserved because of your sin. Friends, that is the best news we could ever hear. As one old writer said, the, de- the sting of death is sin and the poison went straight into Jesus' veins. George Herbert said, death used to be our executioner but the gospel has simply made him a gardener. Jesus died for us so that all who would believe in him by faith will be with him forever. No wrath, only salvation. And the meaning of salvation, there's so, there's so much embedded in that language. There's so much to the riches and the promises of God in Jesus. In this letter and in this paragraph, what Paul is talking about, the benefit of salvation that he's talking about, is not just deliverance from the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. But on that day that Jesus returns, whether you've taken your last breath before that day or whether you're alive on that day, we're all going to stand before God and give an account. And we deserve nothing but wrath and destruction and judgment because of our sin. But for those who are children of the light, who have by faith found themselves in Jesus, there is no wrath. There's only salvation. And that salvation is deliverance from that wrath to Jesus. That's the picture It's from wrath, but you get Jesus. I mean, from wrath was held out to me for 18 years. To Jesus never was. I mean, the the, the entirety of my my 
Christian experience as a kid and as a, as a teenager and a young adult was always from wrath. And if I do the right things, I, I might be able to lie in bed okay tonight, not worried if I'm going to wake up tomorrow because I think I did okay. Never was it to Jesus. But that's the point that Paul is driving home. It's salvation where you get to live with Jesus forever. That's the point. That's the best part. The best part is not just from destruction, but it's to Jesus. It's a quality of life for all of eternity that you and I were created for. The, the thing that we ache for in the deepest parts of our bones is ours for all of eternity with Jesus. That's salvation. John Stott read this passage and said it this way, God appointed us to receive salvation. Secondly, Christ died for us that we might live. Thus, our future salvation depends on God's purpose and our future life on Jesus' death. Therefore, our hope of salvation is very well-founded. It stands firmly on the solid rock of God's will and Jesus' death and not on the shifting sands of our own performance or feeling. The ultimate reason why we should be bold rather than faint-hearted in anticipation of the day of the Lord lies not in who we are as children of the day, but on who God is as he's revealed himself in the cross as the giver of salvation and life. And that, my friends, Paul says, is true. Whether on the day of his return you are asleep or awake, alive or dead, either way, you have been delivered by grace from judgment for Jesus for all of eternity. And you get him forever. Even death itself can't stand in the way of Jesus' victory on your behalf. And so I want to be as clear as I can for this. If you're here this morning and you would consider yourself not, not a follower of, of Jesus, I want you to know that this is actually how you prepare for the inevitable that is to come. You get ready for your death, the taking of your last breath, and or the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus the same way. You prepare by trusting in him. Not trying harder to earn something from him if you grew up in a world like me. No, you trust that he suffered in your place the destruction that your sin deserves and that God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. It means that day to come, whether it's the day you take your last breath and you don't know when it's gonna be, or the day that Jesus is re returns and you don't know when it's gonna be, it means it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be terrifying. Because you're safe, you're saved for Jesus, for all eternity. You prepare the same way by repenting of your sin, your patterns of living, the hope and the confidence that your heart keeps putting in peace and safety as the world holds out and you push it all into Jesus for who he is and who he continues to be for his people. If you want to know more about that, I promise you, whoever invited you here, or maybe someone next to you uh, told you about the church, they would love to help you better understand that. In fact, I'm going to go out front when we're done this morning, grab me, let me know. I, we'll set up a time to talk more about this. Any of the pastors would love to help you understand this, that you, that you can prepare. You don't have to be caught by surprise. When the inevitable comes, you can be ready. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, don't grow weary in the reality that the fight to follow Jesus as his apprentice in this present age is difficult. It's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to be deceived by sin and the peace and safety held out by the empire. The reality of it is we're gonna be hard pressed on every side by the world's demands and we're gonna get worn out. But Paul reminds the church, and God saves it for us this very morning, you know whose you are. And you know who you are. You know what Jesus has already done. And you know that the ultimate war has already been won and what the outcome is. 
And so now you don't have to give up. You don't have to give in to the drift. It's why Paul says in verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're already doing. Encourage one another. We're to be about the business of depositing courage into one another's hearts. We remind one another of these realities, who we are and whose we are and the steadfastness of the promises of God and the hope, the certain hope of eternity with him. We remind one another in this present age of those realities that courage might be deposited into our hearts. We build one another up. What an image they would have had. I mean, they've seen these massive Roman architectural wonders being built piece by piece, built up, same word. We're to build one another up in these realities. I mean, who isn't encouraged day in and day out by being reminded that we belong to Jesus and we belong to the day and that we can clothe ourselves with the armor of God and that in this fight, he's already won the war and we are destined by his grace for salvation to be with him for all of eternity. Build one another up. Encourage one another. And I told the 830 service this. It's a, it's a tidbit, but it's helpful. But there's like 50 plus one another commands in the New Testament. We talk about it a lot around here. But here, there's a different word used for one another than in most of those commands. Here, the picture is of a very intimate reciprocity between two people. It's a picture of like you and I looking at each other. And the only thing between us is this verse. That's it. And we are to be about this business together. This word means that the action of encouragement and building up amongst God's people isn't left to a select few to do. The reciprocity means that it requires all of us with each other. Preachers, we we get up here and and we can get the ball moving. We can get it started. We we hopefully lay out God's word to his people as as well as he enables us to do that you might feast on it and eat on it so that from there, I love the way that, that Jonathan Lehman wrote about it in his book Reverberation, it reverberates amongst the hearts of God's people like musical notes, like sound waves. It just reverberates through the church. That's the picture that Paul's painting. It's a privilege and a responsibility that we have in this present age when the pull and the drift of the world and its rhythms and its hope and its promises of peace and safety are so strong that we get one another to encourage each other, to build one another up, and to fight together. It means we get to invite one another into the realities of what's going on in our hearts because we're children of the light And we can let the light do its purifying work. It means we're free and safe to ask one another, hey, what do you see in the manner in which I'm living? Man, this is something that's been caught up in my heart that I've been captivated by and captured by and it's oriented to the pattern of my my living and I'm struggling with it. I need help to be built up and encouraged in who Jesus is. We get to let each other in with no fear of what the other might think or Because we're his children. And he's ours. And the battle's been won. And the future is certain. We get to go about the business of helping one another live as children of the day. So that we don't give up. We get to help each other stay awake and alert. We get to help one another stay in the fight as daytime people. Peter said it this way as we wrap up this morning. The end of all things is at hand. Right? So like some of the Thessalonians, don't go quitting your jobs. Don't abandon your family and your church. No, the end of all days is at hand. Instead, be be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In that is building one another up. In that is encouraging one another in these things and showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Together staying awake. Together staying alert. Together staying vigilant, longing for the day of the Lord. Not afraid of it. Because together we're encouraged that we have been destined for salvation. 
now and forever. And so this morning, having, having been reminded of the truth of God's word and the love of God to us in Jesus and the certain hope of salvation now and forever, we have the privilege to respond to God's word. And here's how we're, we're going to do it. We're going to give you just a couple of moments of silence to reflect on his word, to consider what he might be doing in you, how he might be calling you to respond. And then after a minute or two of reflection, for those who have believed upon Jesus in faith, repented of their sins, believed upon Jesus, who are now children of the light, you're going to be invited to come forward to take a piece of bread and, and dip it in a cup of juice, remembering Jesus' body and blood, not just suffering in your place, but enduring the destruction that you and I deserve for our sins. He did it in our place and secured for us a salvation, not just now, for, but for all of eternity. When you come forward, you are proclaiming with your body and with your physical action that your confidence and your hope is in the steadfast work of Jesus on your behalf. And so what that means is if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. We want to help you understand what it means to be his more than anything, we don't want you to worry about coming and taking bread and dipping it in a cup. We want you to receive Jesus. And so this morning, as people around you get up and come forward, I know it might feel difficult to you, but we're just going to ask that you remain where you are. And that's not to single you out. I promise you, no one's looking around. It's to protect you from making a false proclamation about your life. Because we're not just coming, taking bread, dipping it in a cup, and going around in circles like ants in a line. We're actually making a proclamation of hope with our lives. And as we do that, the musicians are going to play and sing, and together we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate. And again, if you're here and, and this, you would say, is still something you're trying to figure out, pay attention to the words we sing, the hope that we have and declare to one another. I love the architecture. We sing to each other, declare to one another in the last few moments together. And then we're going to be sent out from this place. So take a moment to reflect, and, and then we're going to continue as we respond to God together. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.